You're listening to The Seventh, Jesus' Words to His Church, a new sermon series by Crosspoint Peachtree City. For more information, please visit us at www.crosspointptc.com. Good morning. Thanks for enduring the creepy movie trailer again with us here at Crosspoint. My name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. Really glad that you're here with us. As Jason said, we uh, jumped in last week into the beginning of a new sermon series, unpacked a little bit of context. We're working through the first few chapters of the book of Revelation, specifically the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And so last week we looked a little bit at some of the context in terms of author, um, that we, we saw this vision of Jesus that the book of Revelation is essentially an unveiling. And so we got a glimpse of the beginnings of the unveiling of everything that Jesus wanted John to see so that he could then record it and get it to the church, which includes you and me. And so last week I began with a question, and the question was this. If Jesus wrote us a letter, Crosspoint Peachtree City, what do you think he would say? What do you think he would commend us for? What do you think he would rebuke us for? What promises do you think he would make to us to spur us along? Uh, which of his attributes would he re- remind us of in order to, to push us toward the finish line? And I mentioned that the good news is we don't have to speculate about answers to those questions because Jesus did write to us. That essentially what you see in each of these letters that we'll look at for the next seven uh, weeks is that um, Jesus says that These letters are what the Spirit says to, plural, the churches. That uh, these letters are not just written specifically to first century churches in Asia Minor, but they're meant um, to be all-encompassing for the church throughout the course of the New Testament era. And so the church has been experiencing great challenges for 2,000 years. I don't know if you figured that out yet. There has not yet come onto the scene a perfect one. There's not a perfect denomination. There's not a perfect network. There's not a perfect local church Uh, because human beings are imperfect and you and I are the church. You don't join the church, rather you are the church if you love and follow Jesus. And because we're works in progress that are being sanctified, that are being conformed more and more into the image of Jesus, there is no perfect church. And so Jesus writes to us just as much as these seven churches dealing with issues like hostility toward the gospel, threats to sound Christian doctrine, Moral compromise by the church in the midst of surrounding pressures. And so we're going to look at at all of that stuff. And what I mentioned last week is that because these letters are meant for us, as well as as the churches that have existed throughout the course of the last 2,000 years and the specific church in the context to which each letter was written, as we dive into the series, I want us to keep the following prayer before us. Um, Would we be open to say, Jesus, encourage me in that which is commendable? Rebuke me in that which is dishonorable, and above all, help me to see you more and more for who you truly are. Is that the disposition of your heart as we engage for the next seven weeks looking at each of these particular letters? I hope so. Don't forget that as we press through this particular book, uh, at least the first few chapters of the book of Revelation, um, let's keep in mind that the major theme of the book of Revelation is this, Jesus wins. Very simply put, that Revelation is the story of Jesus winning, Satan losing, and everything sad becoming untrue for those who are on Jesus' side. No matter what you believe about the secondary issues theologically, no matter where you land in terms of your end times theology, the major theme of this book of the Bible is that Jesus emerges victorious 
in the end. So with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 2. That's where we'll be this morning, the first seven verses. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you should see a Bible underneath one of the seats in front of you, the row in front of you nearby. You can grab one of those and flip open to this morning's passage. It's in the very back of the Bible, last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, let me read and we'll pray and we'll jump in and get to work. It says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you're speaking to us this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit. Most of us, when we look at this passage, we see red letters. And that implies that these are your very words, King Jesus, that you spoke these not only for the benefit of the saints and the church in Ephesus, but also for us this very day, that your word is, is timeless, and yet it is also timely. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to see things that we have come in this morning blind to, that you would open our ears to hear things that we have come in this morning deaf to, that you would open our hearts to receive things that we have come in this morning hostile to. Lord God, would you conform us more into the image of Christ so that we might bear light in the midst of the darkness that surrounds us so that more and more people might meet our good and sovereign King. Would you do that by the power of the Holy Spirit? Father, we lift these things up in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write these words. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on this, but the question has come up in many commentaries. Who is this angel that we're talking about this morning? In Revelation 1.20, going back to the end of last week's passage, Jesus refers to the seven stars, which according to this morning's passage, he holds in his right hand. He refers to the seven stars as the angels of the seven churches. So who are these angels that we're talking about? There are a few uh, differing opinions as to who these angels are. Some would argue that these are the pastors of these various churches. It assumes a senior pastor model, uh, which we would argue ignores the biblical model of a plurality of elders, which you find uh, in First uh, Timothy 3, in Paul's letters to the various uh, churches throughout the course of the New Testament. Philippians 1.1 would allude to this idea that there's a plurality of eldership for the church. And so I don't think that's what uh, Jesus is uh, driving at here when he talks about the angel of the church in Ephesus. Some argue that um, Jesus is talking about the church herself in Ephesus. Yet if this were true, why would Jesus include both stars and lampstands? There's a distinguishing taking place. Going back to Revelation 120, it says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. There's a, a differentiation there. 
And so some would argue that we're talking about a messenger of each church. This very word in the Greek, angelos, can mean angel or it can mean just simply a messenger, someone who delivers the mail. And so some believe that we're talking about a particular um, person who is intended to deliver this particular book of the Bible to each of these churches. And that, that may be a possibility. Although the question begs to be answered, why would the postman be included in such a cosmic heavenly vision as you see in chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, where we get this picture of Jesus? And so I'm inclined to, to argue, and most commentators would agree, that these heavenly messengers, these angels, are, are indeed um, in the cosmic heavenly realm, and they've been entrusted by Jesus with responsibility over the churches in some way that we can't possibly wrap our minds around, that the Greek word angelos occurs 67 times in the book of Revelation, and every one of those times it's driving at um, the cosmic heavenly realm, the idea of angels who instrumentally impart heavenly light and salvation to the church. Try to wrap your mind around that. I can't. If you figure that out, let's go grab coffee. You can unpack that more for me. That's as far as I can possibly take that this morning. Don't want to belabor that. So let's move on and look at... um, the, the particular context of the church that we're talking about this morning, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write these things. Here's a little bit of background on the city of Ephesus. Back in the day uh, of the apostles, the early church, the first century church, Ephesus was a coastal port city by the sea. It was at the cusp of both the, the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean. And so as you can imagine, uh, very accessible to a lot of people, Thus, industry was very high there. It was known as the metropolis of Asia. Population of about 250,000 people in a first century city. Just envision that for a moment. We're talking about the New York City of the day. We're talking about the London, the Paris, the, Paris, the Tokyo of its day. That was the city of Ephesus. It was accessible to both the Greeks and to the Romans for trade and commerce had a theater that could hold more than 24,000 people. I think we have a picture of that for you. You can see um, they actually had a nosebleed section. You could get that high up in this particular theater. Um, this was the, the highlight factory of Ephesus for those of you Hawks fans, the Georgia Dome of Ephesus for those of you who maybe follow uh, football. This was a big place, and this is the place where riots ensued when Paul brought the gospel onto the scene still have remnants of this particular theater. Ephesus was filled with temples dedicated to Roman emperors like Augustus, Claudius, Julius Caesar. The worship of false gods was instituted there at the time that John wrote this letter. It was filled with people who practiced magic arts. So there really was a Harry and a Voldemort in Ephesus amongst others. It was home to the temple of Artemis, the goddess of Greek mythology, the daughter of Zeus. And the temple of Artemis was actually considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, a temple that brought in people from all over the known world to worship. It was a Mecca of sorts. In fact, listen to this quote from Antipater of Sidon. He was an ancient Greek poet who compiled the list of the seven wonders. He says this, he says, I've set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon in which is a road for chariots and the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus and the hanging gardens and the colossus of the sun, and the huge labor of the high pyramids in Egypt, and the vast tomb of Mausolus. He says, I've seen all those things. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. 
And I said, lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on aught so grand. Right? You have the temple where great worship is taking place in the city of, of Ephesus. We're talking about a political powerhouse of a city. We're talking about a religious mecca. We're talking about an industrial king. According to Eusebius, Jewish historian, the apostle John, who wrote this particular book of the Bible, Revelation, was buried in Ephesus, as, as was uh, Mary, the mother, mother of Jesus, many, many believe. And so we need to take a look at uh, what took place in Ephesus, in this re- religious mecca where people are worshiping the Greek goddess Artemis? How did Christianity make its way onto the scene? The, the church in Ephesus is fascinating. If you, if you go back, if you're able to trace historically through the New Testament, we have more information about the church in Ephesus than any other church in the New Testament era back around the time that Jesus lived, died, and was resurrected. That the book of Acts unpacks the beginning of the story of the planting of the gospel in Ephesus, Acts chapter 19 and and chapter 20. Later, Paul writes to Timothy, who's an elder in Ephesus, in the wake of that church being planted. And so you have the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were written by the apostle John while he was in Ephesus. Many believe that he was at least writing 1st John to the church in Ephesus, if not all three letters. And now you have Revelation 2 that we're looking at this morning, giving us a later picture of the state of the church toward the end of the first century. It's quite, quite incredible that you can track the, the birth, the life, and the death of this very church. But if you go back to the beginning, Paul attempted to go to Ephesus on the front end of his second missionary journey with Silas. But he was forbidden, according to Acts 16.6, by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, that God wanted the gospel to go forth in other areas at the time strategically. And so Paul left for Macedonia, but on the back end of his second missionary journey, we're told that he spent a year and a half in Corinth preaching the gospel. Corinth is where he met a Jewish couple named Priscilla and Aquila who obviously were meant for each other, right? When your names rhyme, you got to be soulmates, and apparently they were. So they became friends with Paul. Paul eventually takes them to Ephesus with him as, as he makes his way back from his second missionary journey around 52 A.D. Meanwhile in Ephesus, a dude by the name of Apollos, maybe you remember this guy if you were around for the First Corinthians uh, series that we looked at back in the, in the early spring, There's a guy named Apollos on the scene who was teaching people. He didn't have a full grasp of the gospel at the time. And so Priscilla and Aquila come along, and they do a gospel 101 class with Apollos. Eventually, Paul returns to Ephesus on his third missionary journey. He encounters about a dozen disciples and and asks them if they uh, have received the Holy Spirit. Apparently, they've been sitting under Apollos' early teaching before he took that gospel 101 class because their response is, "Um, what's the Holy Spirit? And Paul says, we got to course correct that. So he lays hands on them. They receive the Holy Spirit, and crazy things start happening um, in the name of King Jesus and his gospel. And we pick up the story in Acts chapter seven, uh, 19, verse 8. If you, if you do have a Bible, let's do this. Why don't we flip backwards, find the book of Acts, um, mark Revelation chapter 2, because we're going to bounce back and forth between Revelation chapter 2 and Acts chapter 19, but I want you to to follow along with me in Acts chapter 19 and kind of see what took place as the gospel uh, was planted in the city of Ephesus, how all of this unfolded. I think it'll be very helpful for us as we look at this morning's passage. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 8. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen. It says this, 
And he, Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, we're told, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. All right, so here's the deal. Paul essentially parachutes in, no grand core group, and just starts planting the gospel. He starts in the Jewish synagogue, which is a strategy of Paul's. Ultimately, the Jews reject the gospel, and so Paul makes his way into the market square to the lecture hall of Tyrannus, uh, which is a place where, according to Jewish historians, people would come to hear professors, writers, and poets, and Paul just starts sharing the gospel there. And yet we're also told in Acts chapter 20, verse 20, that Paul went from house to house sharing the gospel as well. So Paul doesn't care. Church buildings, local Starbucks, door-to-door in the neighborhood, it doesn't matter for Paul. Everyone needs Jesus, and so Paul says there's no strategy that's, that's off the table. For two years, he shares the gospel with anyone and everyone so that within two years, we're told, according to verse 10, that every resident of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's unbelievable, by the way. That completely destroys the notion that you, you have to build relational equity in order to be able to share the gospel, right? It's not, it's not to say that there aren't situations in which we should build relational equity and earn the right to share the gospel with people. But, but Paul would say, if that's your only belief and strategy when it comes to evangelism, you're completely missing it. What do, you, what do you say about the guy that you share a seat beside on the airplane? What, what do you say when it comes to the guy that you sit by at Starbucks who's sitting with his book of world religions um, as you sit with the gospel? Paul would say it's time to respond, right? That you don't have to finish the cup of coffee in order to then be able to engage as if that cup of coffee establishes some sort of credibility for you ultimately in the end. Now, again, is that to discredit um, building relationships for the sake of the gospel? By no means. But what I am saying is that if that's where we land alone, that we don't have a robust understanding of the mission of the, the church. The gospel explodes onto the scene in a church's birth. And that's the church that's being addressed in this first letter to Revelation. Now, again, mark your Bibles. We're going to come back to Acts chapter 19, see how this thing plays out. But come back to Revelation chapter 2 for the moment and look at verse 1. It says, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is... Uh, These are the very words of Jesus himself. If you've ever wished that Jesus would speak to you, if you've ever sat in a field and said, would you please part the clouds and tell me something, like just say something to me about what you want me to do, how you want me to respond, where you want me to go, here you go. Jesus is speaking to his church. If you're a Christian, that's you. Jesus is speaking to you right now. For now... Let me just, uh, a couple of things that I think are helpful for us to note, and this will kind of take us futuristically into the next few weeks, and that's this. Number one, that the description of Jesus in each letter that we're going to look at is taken directly from the vision in chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. So if you were here last week, you remember that robust unveiling of the king on his throne? All right, we're, we're looking back to that vision every week, and Jesus is going to give us a piece of that vision that's in, intentionally strategic for each particular church in her context based on what she's dealing with, based on her circumstances, based on that which Jesus is going to address with respect to those churches. 
And so as we look at each of these letters for the next seven weeks, take notice specifically of how Jesus describes himself. And you'll see how the dots are connected to what the church is dealing with, that Jesus meets his church where she is, and he is fully capable in all of his attributes and glory of meeting her there and helping to sustain her to the end. It says this in verse 2. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. That Jesus commends this church for, for many things. Let's take a look at those for a moment. The first thing that Jesus commends the church in Ephesus for is her labor. He says, I know your works, your toil. I see you serving in kids' ministry. I see you caring for the sick and the elderly in, in the city. I see you relationally engaging those who are in the church and, and who have yet to meet Jesus outside of the church. I see you using your teaching gifts. I see you sacrificially giving of, of your funds and of your gifts and, and of your talents and of your time so that the mission of the gospel might go forth. I see you adding your name to every sign-up sheet that we provide for you as the church. John Stott, in his commentary, describes the church in Ephesus this way in terms of her labor. He says, the church of Ephesus was a veritable beehive of industry. Their toil was famous. Every member was doing something for Christ. That's the kind of church you want to be a part of, right? You don't even have to have the sign-up sheets because everybody's just raising their hand like, pick me, pick me, pick me, please. Like, what's the next thing we need to do in order to, to see the gospel go forth? I want to be on that team. It doesn't matter what it looks like. People are signing up. They're... They're plugged in, they're engaged, they're toiling, they're not lethargic, they're not consumeristic, they're not saying what's in it for me, they're not afraid to get their hands dirty for the glory of God. That was the church in Ephesus, and Jesus commends them for that, for their toil, and so should we, that Jesus is for us toiling for the sake of the gospel, you might say, that if that's you, well done, keep laboring, keep toiling for the sake of Christ. My prayer for us, Cross Point Peachtree City, is that we would be a veritable beehive of gospel labor. That we would be a people who pray regularly that God would spend us for his glory. Back to the passage. Jesus commends them not only for their toil, for their labor, but also for their endurance. Verse 2, I know your patient endurance. And then fast forward to verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. That you're enduring ridicule from all sides, co-workers, friends, family members, neighbors. That you're enduring in the midst of surrounding cultural pressures to conform. That you're enduring in the, the midst of the faithful worship of many false gods as you press into and bend your knee to the triune God of the Bible. That, that this was a church made up of people who stood strong in the midst of cultural and political pressures. This was a church defined by her perseverance. And Jesus commends them for this, and so should we, that Jesus is for us patiently enduring and persevering for the sake of the gospel, whatever that looks like for you. If you're patiently enduring, if you're patiently persevering for the sake of the gospel, well done. Keep fighting, Jesus would say. I pray that we, Cross Point Peachtree City, would be firm and unwavering in our allegiance to King Jesus, a people who pray regularly that God would give them the strength to stand firm to the end. And then lastly, Jesus commends them, yes, for their labor, for their toil, and also for their 
patient endurance in the midst of cultural and religious pressures. But he also commends them for their doctrinal purity. Look at verse 2. I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. In other words, you can sniff out false teaching from a mile away. And the reason you can do that is because you're solid when it comes to sound Christian doctrine. You've actually picked up the Bible and sought to grow theologically, biblically, doctrinally. So that when people come along calling themselves apostles, you know what's what. And this makes sense if you, if you look at, at the story of the church in Ephesus in her early days, how it unfolds. Paul, on the back end of his third missionary journey, meets with the elders of Ephesus and he says, Listen, all right, this church has been planted. You guys now have a firm foundation. But he says this. This is what's going to happen, Paul says, according to Acts chapter 20, verse 28. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his blood. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. That Paul says false teaching is going to happen from outside the church. Pressures are going are to come to bear on the church. But false teachers are also going to rise up within. And you're going to have to be... Uh, Pretty stealth when it comes to your understanding of sound Christian doctrine. Paul warns the church of Ephesus of false teachers. And apparently the church of Ephesus took Paul very seriously. Because 40 years later, as John writes the book of Revelation, and this letter in particular to the church in Ephesus, they're doctrinally solid. The wolves have not emerged victorious, you might say. And Jesus even provides a case study. If you fast forward to verse 6 of this morning's passage, says, yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we don't know a lot about the Nicolaitans. We don't have a lot of New Testament evidence. We don't have a lot of extra biblical evidence with respect to this particular group of people. We do know that according to the letter to the church in Pergamum, which we're going to look at in two weeks, that the Nicolaitans were leading people in that church body to commit acts of idolatry and sexual immorality. And so what was likely happening is that this people group was in opposition to the gospel um, in such a way that they were using it as a means of license to sin. Going back to the book of Romans, we've talked about this before. The first five chapters of the book of Romans, Paul says, here's the gospel. He lays it out so thoroughly. He unpacks the grace of God as the means by which we're saved, not our works, so that as he begins chapter 6 of the book of Romans, he says, Now I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking that we can just sin as much as we want to because in the end, God has to love us. The gospel says God is a God of grace. His grace knows no bounds, so just do whatever you want. And Paul says in Romans 6, By no means that if you've really experienced the grace of God through the cross of Jesus Christ, that that actually compels you now to live a life that honors the king who bled and died for you. We're told that the church in Ephesus opposed this kind of hostility in some sense to the gospel. And we know that it continued on even beyond the, the early to mid-90s when John recorded the book of Revelation for them. Because uh, Bishop Ignatius of Antioch, around the beginning of the second century, says this about the church in Ephesus. He says, you all live according to truth, and no heresy has a home among you. 
Indeed, you do not so much as listen to anyone if they speak of anything except concerning Jesus Christ and truth. In other words, if someone comes along and in the name of truth they preach something other than the gospel, these people are able to recognize and can cut it off at the pass and say, we don't believe that there is another gospel other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. These people are are sound doctrinally. They're sound biblically. They're sound theologically. And Jesus commends them for that, and so should we, that Jesus is for us knowing right Christian doctrine and refuting false teaching for the sake of the gospel. That Jesus is for us opposing hostility that comes from those who are in blatant opposition and hostility toward the gospel and are seeking to lead the sheep astray. That if you're growing in sound Christian doctrine so that you might be able to discern truth from lies, well done, Jesus would say to you this morning. My prayer for us, Crosspoint Peachtree City, is that we would be committed to growing theologically, doctrinally, biblically. That we would be a people who would pray regularly that God would reveal the areas in which we need to grow in a knowledge of the truth. That, that we would move more so from biblical illiteracy to biblical literacy over the course of our lives. Now, the question begs to be answered, who, who wouldn't want to be a part of this church, right? If, if you say, I wouldn't, you're a liar, and you're just jumping ahead to verses 4 and 5 to try to make a case because you've already read where this thing is going. But, but the truth of the matter is most of us would want to be a part of a church that Jesus has just described in verses 2 and 3. A church in which people are toiling. They're linking arms together for the sake of the gospel. They're not lethargic. They're not consumeristic. They're not looking for the next thing uh, that's going to meet their needs, but rather are seeking to meet the needs of others so that they might encounter our great and glorious King. This is a group of people who are persevering in the midst of ridicule, in the midst of idol worship, In the midst of cultural pressures to conform, they're not giving in. This is a group of people who's theologically sound, biblically literate, able to discern truth from lies. Most of us, I think, would say, I'll take it. Like, where's the sign-up sheet? I'm, I'm there. Many of us have signed up for far less than that, right? We've signed up for biblically illiterate churches along the way. We signed up for churches that allow cultural pressures to shift and change the the heart of the very message so that it's no longer really the gospel. We've signed up for churches that have bought into the lie of consumerism and lethargy rather than the truth of contribution and and serving that that comes forth from the truth of the gospel, a, a God who has served us and given his life for us ultimately. Most of us would say, Where do I sign up on the dotted line? I'll take that church all day long. And how about this? We haven't even gone on a tour of the building yet. We haven't even seen the service from start to finish yet. We haven't heard what style of music they play. We don't know what kind of coffee they provide or if they provide coffee at all. We don't know a whole lot about this church's particular environments and programs, but I think most of us, if we're honest, would go, I'll take it, if you're a Christian in the room at least. This wasn't the JV squad. These guys were killing it in a number of ways. In some sense, you might look at it and go, shouldn't this be the the end of the letter? Like, just offer a promise, the prize rewarded for for being that kind of church. And yet, verse 4, we encounter these words, but. The word but is one of the most powerful words in all of the Bible, just so you know. 
it, it creates a hinge oftentimes in the scriptures. If you go to Galatians 4, you get the language of, of us being driven by the law as a taskmaster. And then we get this word, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son so that Jesus might free us by, by the gospel. The word but is, is a hinge word oftentimes, and it is here. This is one example of that. Jesus says, but, all of those things I commend you for, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that, that you can be a persevering, hardworking, theological powerhouse and completely miss it. Jesus says, this I have against you. You know all the right answers. You check all the right boxes. Yet you've abandoned the love you had at first. Welcome to the Bible Belt, people. We know how to fill in the blanks. We know how to, to check our boxes, all the do's and don'ts of, of Christianity, and yet we somehow bypass the heart so often. As I read this, and, and I think on, a, uh, on a, a measuring stick, so to speak, we could relate to some of these churches more than others. Some we might go, okay, maybe a four on a scale of one to ten. This one maybe a six. When I look at Ephesus, I think Cross Point Peachtree City and many churches in the culture in which we, we live. I would put this up there at a, a nine or a ten. That Jesus says, repent and go back to doing what you did at first. If not, I'll remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, I'll remove your light-bearing impact on the world. Jesus says, I'll continue to save as I continue to author this grand narrative of redemption, but it won't be through you. That's sobering. I've seen this happen to churches all over the place. Perhaps you have too. Once a light shining brightly with the gospel now no impact for the kingdom, perhaps not even around anymore. We live in the land of dying churches, churches on the decline in the U.S. as it grows all over the world. Apparently in, in Ephesus, the church did not take heed to Jesus' words because we, we encounter this quote from Archbishop R.C. Trench, who describes modern-day Turkish town of Selsuk, which... Uh, stands on the ruins of what was once Ephesus. It says this, How awful for Ephesus the fulfillment of the threat has been in Revelation 2. Every modern traveler who has visited the ruins of that once famous city has borne witness. He goes on to say, One who did so not long ago found only three Christians there, and these sunken in such ignorance and apathy as scarcely to have heard the names of St. Paul and St. John. That's unbelievable. You have a church that, that was built on the gospel going forth so that every Jew and every Greek in Asia heard the gospel. And yet now we have a dead church that no longer exists, has a presence in that area. That if you use the language of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, that God is writing this grand meta narrative and we get to be characters in it that God created the world right and good without sin. And as we read Genesis 3, we see sin enter the picture, and everything has been spiraling toward death since then. And yet we have this promise in, in Genesis 3.15 that a hero will come to save the day, to save us from our sin and ourselves. And we look forward for the rest of the Old Testament as it foreshadows the hero, Jesus, to come. 
that Jesus has come. He's lived the life that we couldn't live. He died our death. He rose conquering sin and death. And he now sits at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning until he returns to set everything right, to make everything sad, untrue. And in the midst of this grand meta narrative, you and I are invited in to be characters. And we're either going to be characters to our demise or characters to the glory of God and our joy. That we have an opportunity to play a part in missionally bearing light for the world around us. But if we abandon first love like Ephesus, we will not function like that kind of character in the story. We will only encounter that kind of peace in this redemptive story that God is authoring and weaving if we remain committed to our first love. So I think the question begs to be answered. I hope you're asking it. What in the world is first love? What does that mean? What happened in Ephesus is the gospel was planted there in Paul's day. If you go back to Acts chapter 19, you can flip there now. Picking up the story, remember in verse 10, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. The gospel was going forth. And then in verse 11, we're told God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. That, that God is doing such powerful work through Paul that when he blows his nose, people are grabbing his used Kleenexes so that they might be healed of diseases and, and might be uh, rid of demons that are possessing their very being. That, that's insane. They're not being healed by touching Paul. They're being healed by touching the Kleenex itself. I think all of us are going, give me some of that, right? Not the used Kleenex, but the power. I'll take some of that all day long. And then in verse 13, I love this. This is hilarious. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. Let's just stop there for a second. That's a job, okay? Apparently, uh, that's a real thing. Um, you've probably seen the schedule for the Fred this summer and seen that there are some itinerant Jewish exorcists coming in July. So you can go get your ticket for that one if you have sicknesses or are possessed by demons. That some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And we're told that seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva we're doing this. So th these guys are all brothers. They've somehow found a way as a family business to make money on exercising demons, right? You can just picture it. Hey, you guys want to start a business together? Yeah, we should, we should totally do that. What do you guys want to do? I don't know. Let's exercise demons and let's do it on the road. What do you think? Like, let, let's take that on tour. And you could just hear one of the brothers going, um, I was thinking maybe carpentry. Like, I don't really like to travel a lot. And somehow they came about this. They actually went through with this thing. These guys are all traveling Jewish exorcists. They've all seen Paul using uh, used Kleenexes, essentially, to see people healed of diseases, to see demons exercised. And so they go, we want in on this action, too. So they find a demon-possessed guy, and they adjure him, which is like a um, kind of a, a request. It's not very strong. They, they solemnly charge, they strongly ask, you might say, the demon to leave using the name of Jesus to make their request. But uh, we're told that the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Like, yeah, we've, we've heard of Jesus, and, and Paul, he's, he's train wrecking the city for the glory of God. We know, we know that guy. Who, who are you guys? We've, we've never heard of you. And so verse 16 tells us that 
uh, and this is hilarious. Like, this is your Bible, people. The Bible's not boring. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. All right, you got that picture in your mind? Tell me that would not be on Channel 2 Action News, right? Wendy, I'm on the scene. I'm standing outside of the house. Um, Seven itinerant Jewish exorcists entered the home of a man believed to be possessed by demons. They went in exhibiting a lot of confidence, what appeared to be confidence. Next thing you know, all of them are now running around frantically in the front yard, naked and wounded. We, We have no idea what happened, but whatever it was, it was strong enough to knock the fruit of the looms right off of these guys somehow. That's the story that's taking place here in Ephesus. As a side note, that's what happens when you attempt to use Jesus to make your name great. Make him, use him as a stepping stone to build your kingdom rather than bending your knee to him and participating in making him look great. In verse 17, we're told, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. You think, like you think a story like that plays out and people aren't going to hear about it? And then, as we pick up on the back end of verse 17, here's where we get the language of first love. It says, And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That looking at that little section of text from verses 17 through verse 20, I think we see three um, pieces that would define or come under the banner of first love. And the first would be this, exalting, magnifying, declaring great the name of Jesus with wakened affections. We sang those words, awake my soul and sing. We're told fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. You can't magnify a Jesus that you don't see as magnificent at a heart level. That you can't declare great a Jesus who you don't view as great. That you can't exalt a Jesus who you don't view as exaltation worthy. These people are encountering the power and the glory of the risen Jesus, and it invokes in them at a heart level, not just a theological level, but it seeps down into their affections a worship of him. Let me ask you this, if you're a Christian, when you encounter the beauty and wonder of the first uh, person and work of Jesus for the first time, my guess is that it, it caused you to extol his name at a heart level, to make much of him from the depth of your very being. Apparently, the church in Ephesus experienced a deadly shift over the course of time. You might say it this way, by the time we get to Revelation 2, the church is more in love with the doctrines of Jesus than the Jesus of the doctrines. Doctrinal truth is meant to lead to an extolling of the Lord. Affection set ablaze for the king. Secondly, along with this uh, heart-level affection awakened for the glory of God, you have the confessing of sin and unbelief. Verse 18, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. There's a transparency that can't be divorced from first love. We, we live, and I've said this before, in the land of spiritual onions, right? We, we're multi-layered human beings that um, live fake plastic lives that we have to peel back multiple layers to figure out who the real person is underneath all of that. We're committed to keeping up our religious pretenses. Yet according to the story of Christianity taking root in Ephesus, 
When you meet the real Jesus, he frees you to confess your sin and unbelief, to set aside the living of the fake plastic life. When you meet the real Jesus, he frees you to acknowledge that you're not okay in those moments when you're not okay. That those who believe that by God's grace, Jesus is their identity, don't have to exhaust themselves trying to maintain a false identity based on pretenses. Jesus looks at what uh, these people are confessing, and, and there's a sense of first love that we see here. I mean, take a look at it. Like, these people aren't going, um, I got up to about a six on a scale of one to ten on the anger meter last night with my wife. I just want you guys to know about that. Is that important to confess? Yes, absolutely. But, but there's a whole other level going on here, right? It, it's more so, I, I shouldn't have cast a demonic spell on Tom the other night. Like, that, that wasn't a good idea. I probably shouldn't have recited incantations um, by the power of the devil of hell late last night. That wasn't a good, a good thing for me to do in light of now meeting Jesus. It's the language of, I need to confess my addiction to alcohol. I need to confess that I can't seem to stay away from the, the light of the computer screen late at night looking at images that don't glorify my maker. It's the language of, I need to confess that I've been cheating on my wife for months. We, we, the church, will go so far. Like, there's a certain degree that we'll actually confess with one another, but it has limitations. Because at the end of the day, we really do believe that um, our identity is rooted in Christ plus a, a, a minimal cover-up just to kind of keep the worst of us hidden at bay. And yet we're told that when you meet the real Jesus, it, it allows you to unearth who you really are in all of your messiness, um, in all of your joys, all of your woes, all of your sin, all of your unbelief, mingled with the belief and, and love for Jesus that um, somehow is, is intertwined in you as you move toward sanctification, toward being conformed more and more into his image. That there's this idea of affections awakened that frees you to then be able to confess where you fall short of God's glory. And then lastly, first love includes repenting of sin and fighting for holiness. Verse 19, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That according to the story of Christianity taking root in Ephesus, when you meet the real Jesus, you get violent in the fight for your holiness. When you meet the real Jesus, you do whatever it takes to wage war on sin because you know that sin is in opposition to intimacy with the king, with the one that you deeply love. That first love involves not just basking in the glory of the king and, repent and confessing sin, but also putting it to death. It involves fixing our eyes on Jesus and thinking of him so that our affections are stirred more for him than anything else that would be in opposition to him. Does that mean you need to burn all your indie rock CDs or all your books that you didn't buy in the Christian living section of Books a Million or Barnes & Noble? No, that's not necessarily where this thing's going. But it does mean that we violently fight. We take sin seriously and we wage war against it in our lives as a community so that we might encounter more intimacy with the king. If you go to read the rest of Acts chapter 19, and we won't this morning, you see the missional power of first love. You see the light-bearing function of the church in the midst of, of darkness, that as a result of the gospel going forth in Ephesus, people stopped worshiping the Greek goddess Artemis in the midst of that religious mecca 
that those making a living selling shrines to Artemis uh, had their businesses threatened in such a way that riots ensued at that very theater that seats 24,000 people. The economy was shaken up by the gospel that when our affections are set ablaze by Jesus and we confess our sin and put it to death, those things that, that make up first love, we shine forth a light in the darkness that, that wrecks the very fabric of society for the glory of God. That's why it makes sense that Jesus would refer to himself the way he does in this particular letter. He calls himself the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The language of stars and lampstands is light-bearing imagery. The church is meant to shine forth the light of Christ in the midst of the darkness. Going back to the language of first love, listen to this quote from G. Campbell Morgan as we, as we wrap up this morning, explaining how first love is birthed in the heart of the Christian. And notice the light-bearing component in this quote. He says this, When you felt your need of him, of Jesus, as Savior, and there dawned upon you the vision of his perfect love, and you found that the perfect salvation he offered was himself given to you, your raptured soul was bound to him by the excellency of his own character. He goes on to say, In the consciousness of the infinite love of his, of his heart, your love was born. And the first flush of that young love of yours was pure, unselfish, humble, ardent, burning like a flame, consuming everything in its fervor and its fire. You see the way Jesus is connecting the description of himself to the need that the people have? That the church in, in Ephesus had once burned brightly with the flame of first love like a shining star. Like a lampstand, she had once held up a light that bore witness to the glory of Jesus. The loss of first love is directly related to the loss of light-bearing capability. Campbell Morgan goes on to say, Without first love, we may retain ceaseless activity immaculate purity, severest orthodoxy like the church in Ephesus. But there will be no light shining in a dark place. Thus Jesus, the one who is control of all things and is present among his people, calls his people back to the burning flame of first love. So let me ask you this morning, is Jesus calling you back to that burning flame of first love? Have you, have you been running at this thing so long that now it's, it's the doctrines of Jesus, um, but, but that don't bleed into um, or, or move toward the Jesus of doctrines, a deep affection and love for Christ? Have you, have you moved into the realm of cultural Christianity where you're checking the boxes and you know more and more stuff, but yet your heart is not set ablaze by all of that truth? Your affections are not stirred. Is he calling you back to the awakened affections you once had for him? Is he calling you to set aside the fake plastic life and to begin to live in the light, confessing sin and unbelief and trusting that your identity is actually in him? Is he calling you to the vicious and passionate fight for holiness that maybe you've abandoned for apathy? You'll see this as we work through the remainder of this series probably more than once. Here's the danger that we face. See, the church... Um, has an opportunity to live in the realm of right thinking, theology, engaging the head, loving the Lord your God with all of your mind, worship, the heart, the affections, peace, and then service, the hands engaged for the glory of God. We have an opportunity to engage all of these things. Here's what happens when you become top-heavy in any one area. When you become top-heavy in the realm of theology, you become the church of intellectualism. When you become top-heavy in the realm of uh, the heart, you become the church of emotionalism. And when you become top-heavy in the realm of the hands, you become the church of legalism. That 
we're, we're fighting, and it's like a top just spinning, right? You're, you're looking for the sweet spot, and at any given moment, the opportunity to veer in one direction um, at the expense of the others is prevalent and real. So we want to fight for all three of these because Jesus commends the head and the hands with respect to the church of Ephesus. The heart's just absent. And the truth is we can't do this perfectly, which is why we need the very one who spoke these words to us in the first place. We need Jesus. We look to the cross for our identity, and in light of that identity, we fight with everything we have to not abandon first love. Verse 7, Jesus makes a promise as we close. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This tree is talked about in Revelation 22, as are most of the promises in these letters. You can go read Revelation 21 and 22 and get a more robust understanding. But just a few things I'll leave you with this morning. Um, Really fascinating. Number one, the tree is not an end in and of itself. Going back to last week, that the gospel is not a way to get you to heaven. It's a way to get you to God, ultimately. So the tree is meant to sustain the people of God so that they might enjoy making much of him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Secondly, with respect to this tree, the tree points back to the Garden of Eden, what we lost, paradise lost. And Jesus is saying creation will be regained in the end, that I'm, I'm bookending this thing for my glory, and it will be like it once was when everything was right and good in the world. You can bank on that. And lastly, because Jesus doesn't just speak timeless truth, but yet he speaks into a particular culture, it'd be helpful for you to know this, that the tree is a slap in the face of the goddess Artemis, who is no goddess at all. There are two passages in ancient literature that describe the foundation of the temple of Artemis as a tree shrine. The symbol of the tree is distinctly associated with Artemis, and Jesus says that tree will be uprooted in the end. We can go visit Ephesus right now, We can take a look. You'll see that temple is not what she once was. And yet this tree will be rooted forever because it's rooted in the truth of the gospel and the king himself sustains it along with all of us. As we close this morning, we'll take communion. If you're a Christian here, communion's for you. We invite you. Uh, We collectively celebrate the person and work of Jesus through communion every week. We take the bread and dip it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. As you prepare to come, sit with these questions. Assess yourself. Go back to the triangle if that's helpful for you and ask yourself, who am I? Like in terms of the fullness of the Christian life, am I fully engaged at a mind level but absent of the the other two? Am I fully engaged at a heart level but absent of right theology and doctrine and, and hands that are actually getting dirty for the kingdom? Am I fully engaged with my hands doing any and everything to try to serve the church and point people to Jesus? But at the end of the day, it's rooted in no right, sound Christian doctrine or any affections that are set ablaze, but rather begrudging submission. Where are you in that? What, what can Jesus commend in you? Going back to the prayer that I asked you to pray, where would he rebuke you this morning? My prayer as a church here in the land of cultural Christianity, is that we would be a people who have our minds, our affections, and our very bodies set ablaze for the glory of God and the mission of pointing people to King Jesus. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E P
www.ptc.com. Thank you.